So this next section is going to be the last theoretical section. And then I'm going to get into biblical materials and biblical worldview. Um, the reason I want to go through this is because it describes the way the Bible has been studied up until about 20 years ago for a period of up to 200 years. And that method of studying the Bible has infiltrated itself into our church. In fact, when I get there, I'll describe a couple papers <clears throat> that have been written by Seventh-day Adventist theologians. But uh, let me pause for just a minute. I didn't do this at the beginning. My son, David Zinke, did a lot of the illustrating. And then Carol Rainey at Southern Adventist University came along and, uh, and enhanced and, and modified and, and added some PowerPoints. And then my son, Doug, is kind of uh, the energy that I need to do this. When he was a little boy, he would sit on the front row and he would make sure I had my illustrations at the right time. Or I, actually, he got them to me ahead of time, but <laughs> it was so cute to have him sitting there just waiting to bring this illustration up. So anyway, and the other thing I showed you, my, my family, and the reason I'm willing to do something like this rather than sitting in Florida with my toes in the sand is I want my kids to, my grandkids, to grow up in a church that accepts the Bible as the authoritative word of God and the foundation for its teaching and thinking and acting and so on. And so my, my prayer is, you know, that this will be a little bit of an impetus. I know that you folks already come from that background and I appreciate that. A little bit of an impetus to, to even more clearly use scripture as the foundation uh, for your teaching. So we're gonna deal with uh, historical critical method. Historical critical method, <clears throat> remember we said with, with origin, we had a method that came out of Platonism. And with Aristotle, we had a method that came out of, I mean, with Thomas Aquinas, we had a method, well, with Aristotle, a method that came out of Aristotelianism, which was then used by, by Thomas Aquinas to, for his study of scripture. Okay, now we have a new philosophical system. We saw that there's a new concept of God, deism. By the way, we aren't absent from that, but deism. And now we have a new method that coincides with the new philosophical systems. And that method is called the historical critical method. Uh, so within that method are a number of sub-methods and we'll only deal with a few of them. I have a dictionary of historical criticism that's about like that. And I suspect if one were written today, it would be twice that uh, there's Criticism for this and a criticism for that. And it's amazing how many different critical methods you can have. So it accepts the norms of historical science as a means for studying scripture. So instead of the reformers, how did they study scripture? The Bible alone, okay. So the Bible was the context and the Bible provided the method for interpreting itself. Okay, so here, 
the norms of contemporary historical science are the basis for studying scripture. It is a new metaphysic, a new way to understand the world. Uh, so the old metaphysic, what is rational is real. New metaphysic, that which is studied within the flow of history can be accepted as real. Uh, so the historical critical method, the norms of historical science are employed to determine the nature of the Bible and to test all of its truth claims. So if the Bible says something happened, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to check history, and history will tell me whether that's true or not. The method presupposes that the Bible is not the inspired word of God. Remember, where did we, what did we say we were going to presuppose? That the Bible is the inspired word of God. Okay, it presupposes that the Bible is not the inspired word of God. Uh, and if the Bible is the word of God, that will be determined by the method itself. It's not going to be determined by the Holy Spirit or anything like that. It's going to be determined by the method itself. So, contrary to the claims of the Bible in general, historical critical method and its attendant methods presuppose that the Bible is not the inspired word of God and assume that the Bible came by the will of man rather than by the will of God. As such, the Bible must be studied by the same methods as are applied to any other piece of literature. So when you're reading the Bible, you know, think of Homer and the Iliad and think of Shakespeare and think of this poet and, and this historian and so on and so forth, but don't think that the Holy Spirit is behind what you're reading because you're thinking falsely if you're thinking that. Uh, that is from the standpoint of the historical critical method. Okay, as such, the Bible must be studied by the same methods or as applied to any other piece of literature. So, so if it's not the inspired word of God, then you, you're going to study it like you would any other piece of literature. So the method was popularized at the end of the 1900s by Trollich. Uh, it started with the principle of criticism. Uh, what does criticism mean? Okay. So judgment about something, okay? So you can have, it's not necessarily negative. You, you can have a concert and you can have a, a music critic that uh, is quite complimentary of your performance, okay? But who's in charge? You are, okay? The critics is in charge. So it means that human reason is the determiner of truth, of what actually took place. So that's what criticism means. Analogy, whoops. Okay, analogy. Anything that happened in the past has to have an analogy in the present. Otherwise, we know it didn't happen. Uh, so, have any of you been, been to a cemetery in the last five years? See a few of you. Did you see a resurrection while you were there? You didn't. Okay. Did you read about one in the Washington Post or the New York Times? Okay, well then there wasn't a resurrection 2,000 years ago either. See how that works? The present determines the truth of any event recorded in the past. The next one is correlation, and that is that everything is cause and effect. You know, kind of like this car caused this accident, caused this accident, caused this accident, caused this accident, and so you... Start here and you work back until you finally get back to the, this, this car started the whole chain 
of events. Okay, so everything is connected by cause and effect. So you have this cause that produces an effect, which produces a cause, which produces an effect. And nothing cha breaks that chain of cause and effect. Okay, well, if nothing breaks that chain of cause and effect, what do you do with God? He can't do anything. He can't come and perform a miracle. Because that's not cause and effect. You're breaking that chain of cause and effect. Okay, so those three principles uh, were the basic principles of historical critical method. <laughs> now, there, as I mentioned, there were a bunch of sub-methods that came under the historical critical method. Source criticism, this is Wellhausen, the end of the 1800s, came along and said, <coughs> um, the, the Pentateuch is not, was not written by Moses. Uh, in fact, one of my wife's professors uh, one day said, uh, Moses and God and Sinai never cross paths. Uh, and the Ten Commandments came from the Hittite Treaty. And my wife said, okay, so I'll cut this part out. What else do I cut out? And he paused for a moment and said, well, I don't really know. Well, two weeks later, we found out he was playing around with his secretary, and so he had to leave. It didn't matter what he was doing to the minds of the kids. It was okay to say that the Ten Commandments and God didn't, never met, but it wasn't okay to be engaged in that kind of activity. So anyway, okay, so... JEDP, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, were not written by Moses. Uh, over a period of a long, a long period of time, um, there was a group of scholars, or maybe one scholar, or maybe a tradition, or, you know, we don't know for sure what. Anyway, they wrote document J, and that contained a little bit of the story of, of the creation and a little bit of the story of the flood and so on and so forth. And a hundred years later, another group of scholars came along and they wrote document J-E. And a hundred years later, another group of scholars D, another group of scholars P, a hundred years later. And at the time of the exile, somebody pulled all of these manuscripts together. So it's like, um, suppose you're writing a story about the General Conference. And you go back and you take an article from the 1850s, and you find an article in the Washington Post, and one in the New York Times, and so on and so forth, and you cut those articles out, and you take a piece of tape, and you tape them all together, and now you have a new document. So when you're reading Genesis, that's what you're reading. You know, the, the first part of the creation story was written by one group of people, the next part was written by another group a uh, hundred years later. And by the way, you probably haven't noticed, but there's lots of disagreements between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And so therefore, it's clear that it's not telling us about creation. So I'm not talking from my own position. Uh, <clears throat> but so, so Genesis was written by these many different people uh, over a long period of time. So source criticism assumes that the production of scripture was conditioned historically not by the fact that it had combined documents with a prior history of its own, but also that wider movements in human life had influenced their contents. 
So if Genesis was being written today, the fact that we're part of this community, we would be having a hand in the writing of Genesis. Okay, well, form criticism came along, Herman Gunkel, the early 1900s, uh, and he said, you guys in source criticism have done a good job, but you have failed to recognize something, and that is that the pericope, the small piece of literature, itself has a history of transmission. So, and was created within a particular environment. I shouldn't have said history of transmission, that's the next one. So it was, it was created within a particular environment. So the reason this piece of literature exists is its religious setting, its economic setting, its psychological setting, sociological, political, et cetera, et cetera. That's what created the piece of literature. So form criticism presupposes that, however unwittingly, all Israelites over many centuries contributed to the making of the Bible, that it was simply a result of their having had a communal existence as Israelites. So your tribe sat down around the fireplace and talked about trees and uh, snakes and trees that talk and donkeys that talk and so on and so forth. And these traditions were passed on and finally uh, they were written up in this pericope. Tradition criticism came along and said, you guys in form and source and form criticism have done a good job, but this pericope, this small piece unit of literature, itself has a history of transmission. So here, there, was, there were tribe here, tribe here, tribe here, tribe here. They, the arrows represent the life setting, all living within their life setting. Uh, this tribe merged, and when they merged, their traditions merged, the same here. Then the, these tribes merged, and all of their traditions merged. And so now this is the unit of literature that finally made it into the Bible. So when you're preaching, I'm quoting now an Adventist scholar, when you're preaching you want to know what the his historical background is, right? I mean, how can you understand the text if you don't understand the historical background? Okay, so what you have to do is you have to take this text and you split it out into all of its components. You conjecture the life setting that created that text, and then the life setting that created the unification of that text into this unit of literature here. By the way, form criticism, <coughs> I wrote a 200-page paper when I was at Catholic University on form criticism and had my own critique at the end, which was not, fortunately, the same as the critique that I had on history of theology. And my professor, fortunately after I got my A, passed, passed my professor on the sidewalk one day and he said, Ed, I need to talk to you about your naive conception of scripture. My, my naive conception of scripture. So uh, we <laughs> set up a time and like I say, I was very bashful, but I thought this one through. And I said, Ed, this is one time you take the initiative. So we sat down and I said, well, professor, suppose you look at the Bible this way, that God revealed himself to the prophet under the power of the Holy Spirit, the prophet in his own language and to his own culture, but under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, conveyed the message that, in such a way that God's word got through. And when I said that, he sat up in his... Chair, this guy was a relaxed guy. 
sat up in his chair all excited. He said, oh, that's it, that's exactly it. I said, what do you mean that's it? He said, that's exactly the way scripture sees itself. It sees itself as a unique piece of literature. Well, we're together on one thing. So my next question, well, why do you use the historical critical method? If that's, or for, no, the next question was, can you, if that's what scripture is, can you use the historical critical method? And he said, no, the historical critical method was not designed to study the kind of literature that the Bible claims to be. See, the nature of the literature is gonna determine the hermeneutic that you're gonna use. It's not designed to study that kind of literature. And then my question, well then why do you use the historical critical method? And he said, oh, Ed, you can't use a, a culture that's over 2,000 years old uh, and accept what they say about themselves. You have to determine that on modern principles. And then he went on to describe how wonderful religions coming, how this is happening and this is happening and you know the Eastern religions are coming in and so on and so forth and how wonderful religion is going to be in the future. So, well, I think we should be just as honest. He said, if I have one foot in historical criticism, the other one is not in scripture. I think we should say we're going to keep both feet in scripture. Uh, but if we're going to use these methods, we should be honest with our constituents and say we're using methods that are alien to scripture. So, uh, this one, let me give you an illustration. Isaiah, this is exegesis of Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 is a messianic passage. Uh, the paper starts out, prophecy does not foresee the future, it only speaks to the present. How did the idea of the Messiah arise in Israel? Well, there were some good kings and bad kings. They began to write about the good kings. There were some good priests and some bad priests. They began to write about the good priests and the bad priests. There were, same with prophets, good pre prophets, bad prophets. Some place in the history of Israel, we don't know when, I'm quoting now, we don't know when, these three traditions came together, priest, prophet, and king, the Messiah. Now the genius of Isaiah, know the inspiration of Isaiah. See how tricky this is? Talking about the inspiration of Isaiah, not meaning from the Holy Spirit, but his own insight, okay? The, the, the inspiration of Isaiah was that, that, you know, they'd been waiting, the next king would be the Messiah. And generation after generation, the next king was not the Messiah. So his inspiration was that the Messiah would not be the next king, it would be an eschatological king, not of man's making, but of God's making. And so as a church, we have this wonderful message to the, deliver to the world that there will be an eschatological Messiah. Nothing about Jesus Christ, you know, nothing about a literal visible second coming or anything like that, just that there will be a Messiah and that's the message we have to give to the world. Okay, so reaction criticism came along and said, you guys in the first three traditions, you've done a great job, but you failed to re recognize that the final person putting all of this together uh, was himself operating within a specific life setting. So here you have the scholar, or we can think of this as, as a group 
of people rather than just one individual. But anyway, he's got the written documents, he's got the, the oral traditions that have been passed down. And within his own setting, psychological, sociological, political, religious, economic, he's bringing these documents together so as to tell his story. So, if you read something in the book of Matthew this morning, you probably thought you were reading Matthew. Well, you weren't. You're reading the Matthean community. Because what happened was the traditions from Jesus were passed on generation after generation. And every time the church met a crisis, they would go back to the traditions to see if there was something in the tradition that would help them solve the problem. And if they couldn't find something in the tradition that would help them solve the problem, then they would see, well, maybe there's a tradition we can modify to solve the problem. And if they couldn't find one that they could modify to solve the problem, then we'll, we'll create a new tradition that'll solve the problem. So when you're reading Matthew, you're reading the history of what happened in the, in the Matthean community uh, until it was finally written down, not what Matthew himself wrote. You know, there might be tidbits in there from Matthew, who knows, uh, and certainly traditions from him. Okay, let's see what Ellen White says. The warnings of the word of God regarding the peril surrounding the Christian church belong to us today. As in the days of the apostle, men tried by tradition and philosophy to destroy faith in the scriptures, so today by the pleasing sentiments of higher criticism, higher criticism is historical critical method, same thing, by the methods of higher criticism, let's see. Okay, higher criticism, evolution, spiritualism, etc. The enemy of truth is seeking to lead souls into forbidden paths. To the Bible, many is a lamp without oil because they have turned their minds from the speculative belief that brings misunderstanding and confusion. The work of what? Higher criticism and doing what? Okay. And doing what? Dissecting, conjecturing, reconstructing. You dissect the text, take this text, you dissect it. You reconstruct its life setting. And then and then re you conjecture its life setting rather, and then you reconstruct it, the text. And so when you preach, this is the work you need to do. You need to go through all of this so that you know the life setting, you know the historical setting, so that you can, you can preach what the text is trying to tell you. And what, what does that do? Destroying faith. Okay, destroying faith in the Bible is a divine revelation. It is robbing God's word of what? Remember that, power to control. It's, the Bible is a lamp, but it's without oil when you apply these methods, and the power of the word of God. So. Now today, we have a new, new philosophy and that is the philosophy that there is no truth. Truth, you know, whatever it is for you, it's for you, whatever it is for me, it's for me, but there is no truth. And I think, I don't teach 
in the classroom, but I'm hearing from teachers that that's the kind of thing they're getting from their students. There is no truth. Okay, so when you have a new philosophy, you have a what? A new view of God and a new method. So here's method that comes out of postmodernism. Um, there's the, the lily, and this guy says, I see a purple lily, and another one says, I see a red orange, uh, a red rose, and another one says, I see a red apple, another one, I see a red Corvette, another one says, I see some balloons. Who's right? That's right. They're all right. Yeah. I mean, for us oldsters, you know, I, we just don't know. So they're all right, okay? And this is, again, an Adventist illustration. The tomb is open. The tomb is closed. Well, what do you want it to be? If you want it to be open, it's open. If you want it to be closed, it's closed. That's called reader response criticism, the new philosophical system, a new method. Reader response theory harmonizes with postmodern thinking. The meaning of the text is determined by the reader. So the meaning is not in the Bible itself. The meaning is in me. Meaning is in you. Meaning is, is in each one of us. Um, meaning of the text is determined by the reader. There can be as many meanings as there are readers. So just to, to show you the two different methods, the method coming out of scripture, one coming out of historical critical method. <coughs> uh, so you have biblical studies arising out of scripture. So you have the Bible creating the worldview. And method for the study of scripture, reality, science, psychology, anthropology, etc., all take place within the worldview that scripture gives us. So historical cr criteria are used to verify reports of divine activity. The Bible is studied like any other book. External authority is considered normative instead of the Bible. Truth is something apart from the Bible, and I determine what is true in the Bible, if anything. Tools of historical and literary study determine what in scripture is of value and contains truth. So, if I were giving you a text, this is a, a test, this is the one I would give you. Fill in the blanks. Because I want, I want you to understand that the philosophy gives you a method, gives you a result. So, we have uh, the method that came from Neoplatonism, which origin used, which imposed Neoplatonism upon scripture. With Aristotle, you have the Aristotelian epistemology, uh, which is imposed on scripture. With the Reformation, the Bible is its own interpreter, sola scriptura. Historical criticism, the epistemolo epistemological autonomy, the enlightenment, historical criticism. Uh, with postmodernism, meaning is individualized, reader response theory. Now, I'm not caring that you memorize this chart. But I want you to get, I want you to understand the chart, that you have a philosophy, you have a method that goes with that philosophy, and then you have the way you interpret scripture, which is going to 
impose that philosophy on scripture. So historical critical method, you have the historical criticism on the one hand, and then on the other hand, historical people that work from historical critical method don't try to do biblical studies, they do philosophical studies. So you have philosophical theology and historical criticism, so the house is beginning to fall apart even more. The Bible reinterpreted it on the sand alone. So even if the conclusion of a scientific, historical, or philosophical argument were to, to, were to affirm the authority of scripture, the, the authority of scripture would nonetheless rest upon the prior authority of the grounding principle. So whatever principle we use to say that the Bible is the word of God, that's where authority lies. That's where scripture gets its authority from whatever philosophical system or historical system or scientific system, etc. If we use those systems as the basis for determining that scripture is the word of God, we've made them the authority. So summary, there's a basic continuity from the natural world to religious. It's possible to start with the natural world in the process of doing theology. There's a predetermined notion of the nature of God based upon the contemporary world view. Knowledge of the natural world is not to be determined by special revelation. Knowledge of the natural world is discovered by naturalistic methods. Sola Scriptura takes seriously the self-claim of Scripture to be the authoritative word of God. Starts with Scripture as the foundation for theology. So all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Scripture did not come by the will of man, but by holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the nature of Scripture uh, is the basis, the principles for the interpretation of scripture come out of that, the biblical worldview, and that in turn helps us study scripture within the overall context of scripture rather than within the overall context of a philosophical system. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.